Good morning. Let me uh, try to turn myself on here. Can you hear me better now? Right. I, my voice is still not at a hundred percent, so I will rely on this system today to amplify my voice. But if for some reason you can't hear me or I become too loud, let me know. I'll try to adjust it. Well, you're probably wondering who am I going to embarrass today? I started with my wife the first week and then I did myself the following week. And uh, today I had a mind of embarrassing my whole family. It's funny how people enjoy it when other people get embarrassed. When I proposed to my beautiful wife, I decided to take her up to uh, Tilden Park. That's uh, in the hills above Berkeley. Any of you have been there? It's a beautiful place, and I thought, therefore, an appropriate place to propose to my wife. And I scouted it out a little before, so I found the perfect spot. It's a little duck pond with like a bench facing it, not too many people around. And so I had it kind of planned. I took her out to dinner, and then I took her out to the park. My timing wasn't quite perfect, because it was getting dark as we got there. It was, uh, let's see, would that be September 11th? That have been the date? I can't remember. So it was fall, so around this time of year. And the problem is that uh, the wild things that are out in the hills have been waiting all day long to get a drink of water. So it wasn't such a perfect spot after all. And so as I uh, finished reading my poem to her, I told you I was a poet and figured that somehow needed to be part of the proposal, and uh, literally just pulled the ring out of my pocket. We hear some rustling in the bushes behind us. And uh, it sounds like footsteps of an animal, and it's getting closer and closer, and I was beginning to get uncomfortable because most animals will not approach people. And, uh, but I wasn't considering the fact that this was the end of a dry day and animals were pretty thirsty and sometimes thirst will overcome the fear of people. And uh, we don't know for sure what it was. It was probably a mountain lion. Uh, we did see feline eyes at some point. But uh, my wife at some point asked me, are you cold? I said, no. <laughs> and that's when my wife started getting a little scared too. She realized I wasn't, you know, this wasn't some part of the setup of the proposal. I was really scared. And in fact, when, when the animal looked me in the face, I, for the first time in my life, understood why people use the word petrified. Because the word petrified comes from the root word in, in Greek of becoming like stone. Because that's what happened to me. I was more scared than I ever was in my life. To the point I was completely frozen. I couldn't, I couldn't move an eyelash. Actually, that's not quite true. I, the one thing I remember doing is kind of lowering my eyes. You know, somewhere in the back I remember you're not supposed to challenge, you know, an animal or something like that. Anyways, why do I bring that up? Well, uh, the major subject of the message today is about fear. And fear, in and of itself, is not a bad thing, because there could be perfectly appropriate times to be afraid. That might have been an appropriate time to be afraid, because it keeps you from danger, it keeps you from doing something stupid, hopefully, 
that will hurt you. God gave us this ability of feeling fear to keep us from the dangerous things. Now, sometimes fear is not a good thing. Let me give you another example. When uh, uh, my wife and I traveled to Los Angeles one year, my daughter was about two years old. We stopped at the McDonald's to eat. That might have been enough reason to get scared for some of you, but what was the problem was that there, this wasn't a particularly clean McDonald's. And again, perhaps the time of the year made it so that there were a lot of flies in that McDonald's, at least more than you averagely see. And my daughter, being two years old, had a fly land on her face, and my wife, trying to protect her daughter, tried to shoot the fly away and might have hit slightly my daughter. And my daughter started seeing what was going around. There were a lot of flies around. And she just freaked out. And it probably took us the better part of half an hour to try to calm her down. So in that case, fear wasn't a good thing because the flies were not a real danger to her. Certainly with me and my wife there, they couldn't really do her any harm. At most, they could annoy her. But she was very scared of the flies. And it it probably took her a a year or two before she could see a fly without getting kind of nervous. I'm assuming she's not getting nervous anymore. I could be wrong. But that's an example of an inappropriate fear. And uh, there's, there's a word called phobia. Phobia is a word that doctors might use to describe this uh, irrational fear when someone is so afraid of something that the fear itself is doing more harm to the person than that thing that they're scared of. That's a phobia, an inappropriate fear. There's another type of fear, another way in which fear can be inappropriate. And if you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. We will be picking up in Genesis. But to finish this uh, discussion about fear... I'd like to go to Matthew chapter 8. And verse 23. Matthew chapter 8, verse 23. Now, when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with the waves. But he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So here perhaps you notice the word, Fear appears in verse 26. Why are you so fearful? The disciples were fearful because they were in a little boat in the middle of a lake and there was a storm outside and it was so wild that the waves covered the boat. The wave literally broke on top of the boat, filling it with water. And these men, as experienced fishermen as they were, determined that they were facing death. And so they were afraid. And they woke up Jesus and said, Lord, we are perishing. And Jesus said, why are you so fearful? To think that the Lord would say something like that to them. But let's follow with the next words he says, O you of little faith. Let me say this. The Lord Jesus was better able to protect his disciples 
from that storm, then I am able to protect my daughter from a bunch of flies. And we see that because the next thing he stands up, he speaks, and there was a great calm. The storm goes away. I can't do that, but Jesus can. And these disciples were with Jesus, and they were following Jesus, and as long as they were following Jesus, they were in no danger whatsoever. True, there was a great storm. It was a situation that would ordinarily fill the human heart with fear. But in that situation, they should have considered they had the Lord Jesus with them and said, well, he's sleeping, it can't be that bad. And the same way, we should, we should be trusting in the Lord Jesus in our troubles. Now, we will go back to Genesis and we'll look at Jacob facing a number of fears and see how he responds to them. And I realize that as I'm speaking about Jacob, uh, there tends to be sometimes a thought of poor Jacob. You know, he had so many, top, you know, so many problems. We did start this series quoting the verse from the New Testament that these things were written for our example, that we will learn from them. The reason is Jacob isn't so different from the rest of us. We were talking in a restaurant last week about it, about Jacob a little bit, and I said, I'm happy that I'm not in the Bible. Because if I was in the Bible and God would lay down my life before you all to see, I wouldn't feel so good as you're looking at that life. And I, I'm guessing most of you could agree with me as you look at your life and your failings and doing the things that you should be doing. You should be able to be a little more compassionate with Jacob. We are reading about Jacob and we are going to point out his faults because that, that helps us learn from them. But in no wise are we thinking ourselves better than him. We rather, we'd like to see what happened with him so we can learn from it and improve ourselves as a result. All right, let's uh, turn there to the book of Genesis. We skipped most of a chapter. If you remember, we finished last time with uh, Jacob get going to Padanaram and uh, getting uh, two of his daughters and actually being given... Uh, technically two others as wives. He now has four wives. He was sent there to get a wife, a godly wife, and return to, to his home in, in Canaan, or the Promised Land. But uh, he's now been there for 20 years, as we pick up in chapter 31. Now Jacob... I'm sorry, I realized I didn't tell you which chapter I was starting in. That wasn't fair of me. Genesis chapter 31, verse 1. Now Jacob heard the words of Laban's son, saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has acquired all his wealth. And Jacob saw the countenance of Laban, and indeed it was not favorable toward him as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I will be with you. We'll skip to verse 17. Then Jacob rose and set his sons and his wives on camels, and he carried away all his livestock and all his possessions, which he had gained, his acquired livestock, which he had gained in Padam, Padan Aram, to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. Now Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel had stolen the household idols that were her father's. And Jacob stole away, unknown to Laban the Syrian in that he did not tell him that he intended to flee. So he fled with all that he had. He arose and crossed the river and headed toward the mountains of Gilead. And Laban was told on the third day that Jacob had fled. Then he took his brethren with him 
and pursued him for seven days' journey, and he overtook him in the mountains of Gilead. But God had come to Laban, in Laban the Syrian, in a dream by night, and said to him, Be careful that you speak to Jacob neither good nor bad. So Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the mountains, and Laban, with his brethren, pitched in the mountains of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done, that you have stolen away unknown to me, and carried away my daughters like captives, taken with the sword? Why did you flee away secretly and steal away from me, and not tell me? For I might have sent you away with joy and songs, with timbrel and harp. And you did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters. Now you have done foolishly in so doing. It is in my power to harm you. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful that you speak to Jacob neither good nor bad. We'll stop there. All right, so Jacob, again, spent the last 20 years in Padanaram. Remember, he was there 14 years to get Laban's daughters as wives. Why did he speak... Why did he spend another six years in Padan Aram? Well, the chapter or so that we speak, we skipped, tells us why. And there was a certain bargain between Jacob and Laban. Jacob was ready at that time to depart. He was there, there 14 years. He did what he was supposed to. He got a wife or four. And now he wants to head back to where he's supposed to be, uh, Canaan, back to his, his father. Well, Laban doesn't like the idea because he saw that Jacob... While Jacob, Jacob was the shepherd of his flock, Laban was becoming very prosperous. The world, he was getting a lot of sheep. It really wasn't just Jacob's skill as a shepherd. It was really God's blessing. God was blessing Laban as long as Jacob was working for him. So Laban sees he has a good thing going and he doesn't want to lose it. So he basically bargains with, Laban bargains with Jacob to try to keep Jacob there. Well, Jacob at this point is thinking, you know, what can I do to get back at this guy? That made me work 14 years for him. And he says, look, I've been working for you for 14 years, making you rich. When am I going to provide for myself? And Laban says, all right, name your price. And Jacob says this, okay, I want to have all the spotted and striped of your sheep and cattle. And you, you get the, you know, the white one, the pure in color, and I'll get the striped and the spotted. And Laban says, fine, which to me indicates probably the majority were the white or the pure color. The minority were the spotted and the striped ones. Well, Jacob had a trick up his sleeve, at least he thought he did. And he, he had this thing with sticks that he would do. For the life of me, I don't understand why, how Jacob came up with this and why Jacob thought it really would work. It was really God behind it, but he did something with sticks, you know, carving and stuff like that. And he would put it in front of the sheep or the flock when they bore their young. And what do you know? They were born with spots and with strikes in them. Which was really God's, it was God's doing in spite of Jacob's strange ideas. I, I really don't know where they came from. But you can imagine what's happening with Laban. Laban's not happy about this. You know, he made a deal. He thought he was going to get the better of the deal. And he basically sees his, his, you know, most of his flock going to Jacob. And that's where we pick up here in verse, in verse 1. You know, he hears, Jacob hears Laban's children saying, Jacob took all that was our father's. And from what was our father's, he gained all this great wealth that now belonged to Jacob. So Jacob realizes he's in trouble. And I believe that God was really doing this to help Jacob make the break that he needed to break. He needed to live. He wasn't where he should be. He should be in the promised land that God has promised to his fathers, living as a pilgrim. That's what was his life calling. So God is using this situation to make Jacob a little uncomfortable. And then God comes to him and speaks to him directly, saying, look, get up, leave, go to the land, 
the promised land, the land of your fathers, and I will be with you. I'll keep you safe. I'll protect you. All right, so Jacob now has, has a certain choice. So, so it's, certainly he wasn't comfortable where he was. But think of him at this point going to Laban saying, Laban, see ya. I'm taking all this stuff and going home now. Uh, you could imagine him wondering, you know, what will Laban say? What will Laban do? And this is the type of things we run to every day. We have fears. We're thinking, what's going to happen to me if I do this? Well, in this particular case, Jacob had the command of God to follow, the specific promise of God that he will be with him and protect him. And so really what he should have done is go to Laban and say, Laban, you know, I know we've had some rocky relationship over the years, but God came to me and said, it's time for me to go, and I'm going. You know, I, all the, you know, your daughters and your grandchildren that I've had and worked for you for 14 years, and your flocks, which I worked for you for six years, we did make a bargain, and that's what happened. And, you know, it's time for me to go, and I want to give you a chance to say goodbye to all your grandchildren and your daughter, because I know that you love them. That's, that should have been what Jacob should have done, something along that line. That would have been, if you would, the action of faith. He would have trusted, well, I don't know what Laban will do to me, but God wants me to go, and I need to go, and this is the right way to do it. Is this what Jacob does? No, he waits till Laban is busy shearing his flock, probably somewhere miles away out of town, or maybe Jacob was miles out of town, I'm not sure which way, but they were separated, and in a sense he looks, waits till Laban looks the other way, and he picks up everything he has, and he runs you know, for his life. All right, not exactly an action of faith. Now, we see here one of the consequences of letting our fears over, overcome us and, and doing, acting in a way that's inappropriate is really a loss of testimony. We see here Laban come and rebukes Jacob for this behavior. He comes and he... Uh, everything that Laban says more or less is true except for the promise about sending Jacob you know, with timbrel and harp. I don't think he would have really done that. But he's right that Jacob has done foolishly. That's not appropriate behavior. In fact, it just got Laban angrier. If anything, now Laban has a real reason to be angry with Jacob. He shouldn't have just, you know, so to speak, taken his daughters and grandsons by the sword and not given Laban an opportunity to say goodbye to them. Okay, that was wrong. Now God is faithful to Jacob, and Jacob is, if you would, he's generally following the commandments of God. He is now going in the right direction. He's just not doing it the right way. And God is faithful, and he's protecting Jacob. And he appears to Laban by night and say, you know, I don't want you to say anything good or anything bad to Jacob. Right. Am I confusing names again? Right. And I, the way I take it, don't say anything good. You know, don't try to, you know, in some way say something to him to try to get him to stay. You know, tell him, oh, I'll give you more stuff. I have all these other things in plan for you. I don't think Jacob would have fallen for it anyways this, this time around, but... But God says, don't say anything, and don't say anything bad, meaning don't start threatening him and tell him you'll take things by force from him if he doesn't go. Okay, so, so God protects Jacob from Laban here. All right, let's continue in chapter 32. So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. And he called the name of that place Machanaim. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. 
And he commanded them, saying, Speak thus to my lord Esau, thus your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my lord that I might find favor in your sight. Then the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We have come to your brother Esau, and he also is coming to meet you. And four hundred men are with him. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two companies. And he said, If Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the other company which is left will escape. Then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and Jacob of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your family, and I will deal well with you. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he lodged there that same night and took what came to his hand as a present for Esau, his brother, two hundred female goats and twenty male goats, two hundred ewes and twenty rams, thirty milk camels and their colts, forty cows and ten bulls, twenty female donkeys and ten foals. Then he delivered them to the hands of his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass over before me, and put some distance between successive droves. And he commanded the first one, saying, When Esau my brother meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong, and where are you going, whose are these in front of you? Then you shall say, They are your servants Jacob. It is a present to send to my lord Esau. And behold, he also is coming behind us. So he commanded, so he commanded the second, the third, and all who followed in droves, saying, in this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him, and also say, Behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me, and afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present went on over before him, but he himself lodged that night in the camp. We'll take a break here. We will continue. Don't worry. Uh, so we see here Jacob is, is finally coming to the land that he was promised to be the land that God was going to give him and his descendants. Now before he gets there, there's this interesting incident in verse 1 and 2. Let me read it again. So Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And he called the name of that place Machanaim. This is one of those Unusual incidents where somebody sees angels in the Bible. Angels, the Bible tells us that they're all around us. We can't see them. They don't have bodies as we do. And yet, sometimes, in rare instances, God will give people the ability of seeing angels. Sometimes he'll be selective. For example, uh, Daniel sees an angel coming toward him, and nobody with Daniel can really see. They're all struck by great fear, and they run run into the houses, but they can't see. So God is the one who gives us some time the ability of seeing angels. Well, why is God letting Jacob see angels at this particular instance? I believe that he is showing this to Jacob to encourage Jacob. 
think of Jacob going here through some dangers. First, he has Laban and he's living one and he's going toward the other danger. And he runs into this camp of angels. And he, he says this, he names that place Machanaim. Machanaim literally means double camp or two camps. What he was talking about is he realized that he wasn't traveling as a single company. He wasn't dwelling in a single camp. There were really two camps. There was his camp, and there was the camp of the angels of God all encamped around him okay, for his protection. Let me take you to one passage that, that has a similar thought to it. It might become a little more clear. This is in Second Kings chapter 6. Second Kings chapter six and verses fourteen. Start at verse fourteen. So this is what happened here is uh, there was a war between Syria and Israel. And Elisha was a prophet and he would warn the king of Israel what the next move would be of the king of Syria. And the king of Syria wasn't happy about it. So finally he decides, Well, I'm gonna go after Elisha. Elisha, Elisha? Elisha or Elisha is the Hebrew phrase. Uh, directly. I'll just come after him. Alright, so he sends this host in verse 14. Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. This is the city where Elisha was. And when the servants of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, Elisha answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that we may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So from, from the perspective of the servant of of Elisha, boy, we're in real trouble. We're surrounded by this army of Syrians. Elisha, Elisha saw and asked God to open the eyes of the servant that he was actually surrounded by a greater host of angels. And we know that the ratio between an angel and man is not exactly one to one. It might be close to one to a hundred thousand. Okay, so there wasn't a force on the earth at the time that had a chance of touching Elisha. But coming back to the passage, that's what Jacob saw. As he, as he left Laban, was traveling toward Esau, he meets this angel and he recognizes he's surrounded by another camp of angels that were protecting him. I believe God did it to encourage Jacob. Look, I realize you're in danger, but trust me, you're safe. Okay, I'm protecting you. All right, let's continue. In uh, Genesis 32, so we, we've already read it. And... Uh, we look here at Jacob, and the first thing that Jacob does is he sends some messengers to Esau. And I'm not sure exactly why he sends the messengers, but it doesn't seem to be a particularly good thing. Uh, for, it could be that he sent them to try to determine whether Esau was still angry with him or not, which you know, might be somewhat logical. 
you could understand that. It looks like he was maybe also trying to make Esau uh, feel good. If you look at the language of what he says, you know, tell my lord Esau that your servant Jacob is coming. He's kind of building Esau up a bit. In today's language, we'll, we would call it kissing up to somebody. Uh, and he tells him about all this stuff that he has. I'm coming and I have all these donkeys and cattle and things like that. Which I think there was already the beginning of a proposal. Look, if there's differences between us, we could probably settle them. You know, I'm willing to somehow make up for the wrongs that I have done to you. Now, now we can step back and think, well, what should Jacob be doing here? Now, it's technically uh, possible and even likely that Esau is angry with him. And he was warned in the past that Esau wanted to kill him. So, in a sense, there was a reason to fear him. But what would be the right thing for Jacob to do? Well, if Jacob hasn't done it yet, he should apologize to Esau. What he did was wrong. Okay? And we are to confess our sins to our brothers, leave our gift at the altar, and go you know, make things right with our brother. So that would have been right and good for him to say to Esau, you know, I've, I know I've done wrong to you, and you know, I want to make it right. I mean, that would be understandable. But you don't really see it here. You know, it's more he's thinking, what can I do to make Esau not want to kill me? He's really thinking of himself here. All right. Uh, the other evidence I, I see that this wasn't the right move is the response. As you see, it's almost Jacob is trying to take care of things by himself. Again, instead of trusting God's protection, which he just saw an evidence for, he's trying to, to kind of deal with Esau by himself, by his own strength. And the next thing that happens is the messengers come back and they say, well, Esau is coming, and an army is coming with him. <laughs> you know, to hear that 400 men were coming with Esau was not good news to Jacob. And I believe that Esau did come with the intent of doing harm to Jacob. It's hard to understand why else he brought 400 men with him. It probably wasn't to see him weeping over his brother's shoulder, you know, as a brother. That probably wasn't his intention for bringing all these guys along. And that finally brings Jacob, at least I, I don't know of any instance recorded in the scripture before this, where Jacob actually turns to God in prayer. And we see him turning to God in prayer in verse 9. And if you look at, at Jacob's prayer in verse 9 through 13, it's a good prayer. I can't fault anything that he says to God. I mean, he, he remembers what God has done for him. He claims God's promises to be with him and protect him. He reminds God of his promises to make him into a multitude of people. And he, he brings to God all the right things in prayer. He even, you know, remembers that it's all God's mercy. It wasn't because he deserved any of this. The problem is, that the prayer doesn't seem to give Jacob much comfort. We're told this in the Bible, let all your requests be made known unto God. Uh, all right, I'm going to have to cheat here and look at my notes. It says this, be careful for nothings, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Prayer that comes by faith in God, as I'm trusting in God, should bring me peace. And we don't see that peace in Jacob. And we don't see that peace because after Jacob is done praying, he collects this great wealth of animals from what he has, and he sends it ahead of him as gifts to pacify Esau. So you see, he's not quite trusting in God. Now, so we, we mentioned before I don't know if I specifically mentioned it, but there's a number of consequences we see here to Jacob not trusting God with his fears. The first one was the lack of testimony. Laban comes and rebukes 
Jacob for how he has been behaving. Instead of, of Jacob showing, demonstrating his faith in God by the way he leaves Laban to go to Canaan, he does it in the wrong way and he loses any kind of testimony with Laban. The second consequence we see here is the loss of all, a lot of his livestock. He didn't need to lose it. He didn't need to give it away. And in the same way, when we're afraid of something, and as a result of that fear, we're trying to, by our own effort, deal with it. We're probably going to be losing, you know, time, energy, money, maybe, for no reason. If we trusted in God, if Jacob trusted in God, he wouldn't have had to pay as great of a price to, uh, to be safe from labor. This was his doing. A lot of time when we try to save ourselves from dangers, we end up paying a lot more than we need to be paying. Yeah, that's the second consequence. The third one really is, is what I've mentioned here, is this lack of peace. Do you know that God wants you to have peace? Peace in your life? It says this in Isaiah, and I'll cheat again and read from my notes. It says, You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, for he trusteth in thee. That's the promise of the scripture, that if we trust in God, we will have great peace. Let me take you to one other passage, if you would. Turn to the book of Hebrews. And chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. This passage talks about the reason of why we shouldn't be afraid. It says, Jesus, the Son of God, God, uh, the eternal almighty God, became flesh and blood. We talked about that a little bit this morning as we were worshiping him. And he did it that he might die, he might suffer death. And the reason he did it that we have here is to release us who were under bondage through fear of death, that we might be the liberated children of God, walking this earth without fear, doing the will of God, rejoicing, not being afflicted by fear that was putting people in bondage. The Bible describes here people as being under bondage because of fear of death. People are afraid, and they have a good reason to be afraid because they don't know God, and they suffer things in this world, and they head into an eternity where they will suffer even more. So people have a reason to be afraid. We don't. Those of us that understand what Jesus has done, becoming a man and dying for our sins, that we might live and have a relationship with God, what is there for us to fear? Can we? Even, even death is not something to fear because as someone mentioned, it's basically graduating to the next level. It's to be with God without any barrier. It's to see him in his glory and to enjoy him forever. That's the purpose. That's why we were made. And that's, that's the only thing that death is to us right now. It's just a passage between here and there. We shouldn't have any reason to be afraid anymore. And that's the way God wanted Jacob to be. That's the way God wants you and me 
to be as well. Let's turn to back to Genesis and we'll finish the passage. So we made it as far as verse 22. We'll pick up in verse 22. So remember, Jacob has now sent ahead of him all his uh, the gift that he was sending to Esau. And he arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and cast over the ford of Jabbok. He took them and sent them over the brook and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob. But Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men, and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. And he said, Why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrunk, which is on the the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrunk. Now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming, and with him were four hundred men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants, and he put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. Then he crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And he lifted his eyes and saw the women and children and said, Who are these with you? So he said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maidservants came near they and their children, and they bowed down. And Leah also came near with her children, and they bowed down. Afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down. Then Esau said, What do you mean by all this company which I met? And he said, These are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, No, please, if, if I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present. For my hand, inasmuch as I have seen your face, as though I had seen the face of God, and you were pleased with me. Please take my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. So he urged him, and he took it. So here we see God once again saving Jacob, not because of what Jacob did. A lot of time people say, well, you know, God helps those who help themselves. You know, I'll, I'll do this and I'll be okay, but it's really because God is helping me through what I'm doing. It's neat to see that God is completely putting aside anything that Jacob is doing here and instead just touches the, touches the heart of, of Esau. The Bible says that the heart of the king is in the hand of God to turn it one way or another. And right now, God just simply turned the heart of Esau, 
from probably wanting to kill or at least harm his brother into just looking at him as the brother he loves. And, you know, in spite of the 400 soldiers he probably brought with him, he just runs to his brother, hugs him, cries over his neck, and uh, the rest is history. Well, there's, uh, there's a, a neat uh, part here in the passage I thought maybe we can spend at least a few minutes on. And it's something that, uh, to me, was, was uh, and is, to some extent, one of the most unusual parts of the Bible. You have God coming as a man wrestling with a man, Jacob, and appear to be losing, or at least not able to somehow pin him down, and then wants to get away and can't get away because the man is holding on to him, and uh, you know, at the end, giving him a blessing, and then he goes away. Well, what in the world is happening here? Well, people throughout the centuries have appeared to try to come up with, with interpretation of the passage. Why is God doing this? The most common one, which is probably at least partly true, is that it shows... Uh, Jacob wrestling with God in prayer. Jacob is trying to get God to save him from Esau's brother, and he's spending all night wrestling with God in prayer. And finally, God answers his prayers and saves him. Well, I think it's at the very least an oversimplification of the passage. There's a lot of things that don't, you know, you still don't understand with that particular explanation of the passage. Let's look at them. The first thing we see, if you look in verse 25. It says, Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Well, if Jacob is here going to God to struggle in prayer, well, why is it that the man that picks the fight with him? Right? It's, it wasn't started by Jacob. It was started by the man, who we see later is God. Okay? He is the one who is picking the fight with Jacob. All right? Why is he doing it? Well, it's really consistent with what we've seen all along here in Jacob's life. God has been asking Jacob to do things, and instead of Jacob doing things God's way, he's been doing things his own way. God, God, God for a long time, told, told uh, Jacob what to do, and Jacob keeps doing his own thing. And really what you see is God coming to Jacob and trying to get Jacob to surrender. You know, move over. Let me run your life. I'm the one that should be in charge. God should be our God. In spite of that, most of us live as if we are our own God. We do our own thing instead of doing what God wants us to do. Instead of trusting in God, as Jacob should be doing here, Jacob is trusting himself and trying to save himself by his own power. And it's almost like God trying to get a hold of Jacob and get Jacob to yield. And well, why can't God just force Jacob? I mean, isn't he stronger than Jacob? Yes, God could force Jacob, but he doesn't. Just like God doesn't force any of us. He doesn't force us. He wants us to be willing. God, God could force us. If God wanted to, he could, he could subject all of mankind to himself and have them all worshiping Jesus. And one day we'll know it'll happen. One day it'll happen that every knee will bow and that every mouth will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But right now God is trying to save us and he's not going to save us against our will. And it's as if he has to struggle with us to bring us to the end of ourselves. Instead of trusting in ourselves, God has to show us, look, you are not able. You cannot save yourself. You cannot run your life. Look at the mess you're making out of it. And, and finally, he has to bring Jacob to that point. And we see Jacob is wrestling with him. And the only point in which Jacob seems to finally, in a sense, give up is when he touches his leg and dislocates it. And uh, 
There was two things that were done. The one, it showed Jacob his weakness. The Bible says this. There's a verse that says something like, you know, God doesn't delight in the strength of the horse and doesn't delight in the legs of a man. And it's not about the fact that, you know, men need to wear long pants or anything like that. It's just that the leg of a man is often looked upon as the strength of a man. And here, the angel of God with a single touch is dislocating the strength of a man. That strongest part of Jacob was put out of joint with a mere touch. It showed two things. The weakness of Jacob, really his inability, and the power of God. With one touch, he could take away his strength like that. And now, the fight actually changes because now the man or the angel of the Lord wants to leave. He says, let me go for the day break it. And now you see Jacob holding on to him for dear life. And that's, to me, what God was trying to achieve in Jacob is to let go of his own failing strength and put his trust in God's almighty strength. And he's holding on. And, and once again, God, it appears as if God can't escape. You mean, can't, isn't he stronger than Jacob? Can't he loosen Jacob's grasp? Well, you see, God won't. If you hold on to God, as Jacob was, with faith, God will not break your hold on him. There's one thing that God won't do. Those who call upon the name of the Lord in faith and reach out to him to grasp him, God will, will. Jesus says this, those who come to me, I will by no wise cast away. He won't. If you come to him in faith, you will have him. All right, how can we apply this to ourselves really quick? Uh, Israel. So we had here a change in name to Jacob. Jacob was, was renamed from Jacob Israel. It happens to just a few people in the scriptures that God sees it fit to change their name. And Jacob really stands for Jacob doing things on his own. He's been trying to run his life on his own. Israel is supposed to describe his new life. And the, the word Israel has been translated in different ways. Some people translate it as prince with God. Uh, another translation that probably is a better translation is uh, to struggle with God. It's a compound word of the word Isar and El. El means God, Isar means, could mean to rule, which is why some people translate as prince with God. It could also mean to struggle with God. And in the context, it certainly talks about struggling because that's the word that it takes. It says, it, it, God tells Jacob, you have struggled with man and with God and with man and have prevailed. And it's that word translated as struggle that God takes and merge with the word name, or the word God, and forms the word Israel. He who struggles with God. Well, why is that such a good name <laughs> to have? Well, it tells you of two things. One, it tells you of the fact that God has struggled with that person and he has prevailed. God has brought Jacob to the end of himself and he saw the end of himself. That's what God has to do in all of our lives. For you to come to God into the relationship God wants you to have with you, he has to bring you to the end of yourself. And God is gracious enough to struggle with you and not overcome your will, but try to make you realize through different difficulties in your life or disasters like what happened to Jacob that you can't rule yourself. It's the grace of God. He brings you to the end of yourself. The other half of that name is what Jacob did to hold on God. Why did, why did God have this? Why did God tell Jacob at that particular time, let me go? Well, I think he wanted to demonstrate, if you would, this newfound faith of Jacob in holding on to him. Like Jesus told the woman that followed him and said, Lord, heal my daughter. And 
Jesus said, it's not meat to give what was meant for the children to the little dogs. He knew her faith and he was doing it so that the whole world will see the faith that she had in Jesus. And that's the same reason God sends trials into our lives of the type that Jacob experienced here, is to give us an opportunity to show our faith. We have a choice when we come to a trial. Are we going to do things by our own strength? Or are we going to trust in God? And when we trust in God, this is what the, the Bible says about it. This is 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That the genuineness of your faith, God wants the world, the universe, to see our faith because it's so precious to him. So what does God do? He sends trials our way and gives us an opportunity to, in the face of the trial, hold on to God. And then, at the end, God will reveal it because he is so pleased with our faith that he wanted it to be manifested. That's why he sent us trials. It's not to harm us. It's to help us or to, to show what we have that God appreciates and, and loves about us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love to us. Thank you for struggling with us, Lord, both to bring us to the end of ourselves, to show us we cannot save ourselves, and also uh, working in our lives to bring out our faith and show our faith in a way that is pleasing to you. Help us, Lord, as we run into these type of trials, instead of looking to our own resources, to look to you to save us, that you might be glorified through it. In Jesus' name.